0: Hello! Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino, and I'm so happy you are joining us today. If you would like to continue these conversations even further, you can hang out with me on Instagram at Therapy. That is my favorite place to interact with people, and I would be so, so happy if you would connect with me on there. Let me tell you about today's guest, who is a dear friend of mine. I really, really love her. Her name is Ryan Bright, and she is the co-owner and co-founder of the Family Recovery Centers, which is an intensive outpatient program for adolescents and their families in Lake Bluff, Hoffman Estates, and St. Charles, Illinois. She's also the co-founder and co-owner of the Chicago Integrative Center for Psychology, a large private practice in Lake Bluff. In her 20 years of counseling, Ryan has worked in multiple levels of care, including intake coordination, private practice, intensive outpatient programs, and inpatient units. She also has experience assessing potential psychiatric patients in the medical setting and working with special needs adults. So I really enjoyed hanging out with Ryan. I don't get to talk to her enough. So this was quite enjoyable and lovely for me, and I hope it is as enjoyable and lovely for you. So please enjoy my conversation with Ryan Bright. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Thank you, Sarah. How are you? I'm doing well, despite the circumstances. Yeah. Right. Yes. So everyone knows we are definitely recording this in the midst of coronavirus, COVID-19, all this jazz, and it's a lot. That's to say the least. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the right way to say It's a lot, right? (laughs) Definitely. Well, would you start by telling people who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. 42-year-old. Cis female, no kids, no husband to speak of, mother to my beautiful little Walter William, who's 15 and a half, my little all-American. I oversee the clinical operations of the Family Recovery Centers, which is an intensive outpatient program for adolescents and their family. And then I also have a small private practice and oversee the clinical aspects of my private practice in Lake Bluff, the Chicago Integrative Center for Psychology. And you left out badass. Thank you. Yes. I, you know, I didn't want to come out too hard.
0: (laughs) Well, that's, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here. So just so listeners know, Ryan and I are friends and we've known each other for many years. And Ryan was, you were so helpful to me when I was in the midst of, let's say a really disastrous business deal that didn't work out for me, but you were so kind. And at that time, I, I just thought like, we don't know each other that well, you know, we kind of mutually admire each other's careers, but you were just so generous. And I was just really, I just really felt held and, and cared for. And that's like, that's the fucking women's empowerment shit that we need to be doing is really, really supporting other women. And you did that.
1: Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's always been a huge aspiration of mine both personally and professionally is to any way I can help, you know, I know very little about a lot. So it's, you know, being able to help people in those moments, you know, whatever they need.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but one of the reasons that I like to help people is one, you know, kind of paying it forward for the people that helped me along the way. And two, I didn't get that shit as a kid. I did not get the help and support and care and love that I needed. And so I want to give that to people now. Yeah, definitely. It's hard.
1: You know, I've always been so fortunate to have a great family support, but from a very surface level, humor is Mm -hmm. a huge, that's how we show our love is making fun of one another, which Mm -hmm. I learned later on in life is not necessarily the best (laughs) for your your self-esteem and confidence (laughs) (laughs) and body image and all of the things, you know, right. I am blessed to, you know, I've met you along the journey. You're right. We did meet We had just met when you were going through all of that terrible ordeal. And I was just glad to be able to help you and like give you my words of wisdom, what I've learned along the way, you know, and I really do believe in paying it forward for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, tell us your your therapist origin story. What made you decide to become a therapist and start at any point in your history that you want? Like, Ryan was born and then. <laughs> right. No. Well, it's it's funny. I
1: uh, was thinking about this and I always joke. So I, originally I was going to be a pediatrician and then when oh, really? I got, yeah. And so then right in high school, my, my senior year, I started working in a hospital and What was called a transitional care unit, which was you know elderly like either going to hospice, to the nursing home, or just there to pass. And then you know I was like, this really the grief and loss side of things wasn't for me at that time. I was very young, obviously it was only seventeen. And then I got an opportunity to transfer to labor and delivery and be an OB tech, so assisting with all births, cesarean, and vaginal. And I loved it. I was like, this is so cool. I'm so I'm good at it. It's very Structured. There's a method. This is so great. And then I guess I don't know if it was too much joy or what, but hmm. I was not challenged. I didn't feel I thrive in chaos and I thrive in crisis. <laughs> and you know, I joke to my friends sometimes I'm just such a beautiful disaster that <laughs> you know because I was like, this is so boring. As much as the miracle of life in that way is that a miracle, and I was bored just bored. And I'm like, well, I always, I was going to be a midwife. I had all these, you know, grandiose plans. Always. My life was so planned, which I learned sucks. And I changed that completely. And I was like, well, what do I do? I I want to, I'm going to grad school. I mean, I have to. And then I'm like, oh, I know I'll go into psychology. That's easy. Lies.
0: (laughs) Oh, this is interesting. I wonder
1: why. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so I realized quickly, and, and to be honest, I was very skeptical. I'm like, therapy doesn't work. This is bullshit. <laughs> this is garbage. This is gonna be so easy. I'll just go talk to people. My like, God, that's my favorite thing to do, is never shut up, you know? And I applied to grad school and my advisor, now looking back, knew instantly I was skeptical. Mm -hmm. And kept pushing me and challenging me on my these huge walls I'd built up. And I was like, what the Mm. fuck are you talking about? I'm the most open and genuine person you know, bitch. You know, like, yeah, that was my little 25-year-old self, which I found was a big fat lie. Once I finally took her advice and sought out therapy. And I went through three therapists, honestly, before I found the right fit. I remember my first one was like, I go, whatever you do, I don't want to talk about my family right now. At the time...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, and that client who comes in with that shit, now you're like, you know that that's gonna be exactly where you need to go. It's so funny, right? And then she
1: busted out <laughs> her like genogram. I'm like, no, yeah. not happening. I'm told you, I, you know, and I knew that I was like abusing drugs and alcohol at the time, and I was trying to convey that with the mindset like, but I'm okay. See, I do all this, but yet I'm still okay. I right. work full time. I go to school full time. I pay my bills. I just I'm having fun and decompressing. And so she just wanted to talk about my family. I wanted to talk about, like I needed someone at that time I felt like to say, you need to slow your roll. Like you're heading down a dangerous path. And I just kept going until I found that person. I remember sharing with my second therapist, I saw a psychologist. I told him that I was drinking pretty heavily. I would drink about a fifth of alcohol every one to two days and I would probably smoke at least an ounce of weed a week, you know? And I remember telling him that and I'm like, oh my God, I finally put it out. I like admitted to how much. And he's like, All right, well, I guess I'll uh, I think monthly will do. Wait, monthly sessions? Yeah. No. Yeah. I
0: know, right. Wrong. And
1: <laughs> I thought so I was ready to go to treatment. Like I was ready for right. like, them to say all right. You know, what I had only learned because I was in grad school and I was like waiting for it. And he just said monthly and I'm like, well, I don't think this is going to work. So then I finally found my therapist and it was like, he got me right away. And Mm. he's like, you have a decision to make. Here's what you have to do if you're not going to treatment. So set up a whole treatment plan for me that way, and then worked through that and just kind of made sure that, you know, stabilize. And then I remember, like, it resonates with me so deeply to this day that at the end of our first session, he says to me, it looks like we have our work cut out for us. And I'm like,
0: well, hmm. right,
1: I told you about what I'm doing. And he says, no. It's like you seem to have built this fortress around your emotions. And my hope is to get you to take down the steel and cement walls and just let me peek through your locked chain link fence.
0: Ooh.
1: I know. So, and Oh, I'm f- still feeling
0: things, but oof,
1: that's yeah. good. Yeah. So then I proceeded to cry for three years straight. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, that brings me so much joy. Okay. Yeah.
1: I thank you. you. I know. That's what I like best about you. Uh, (laughs) Others pain is my joy. Um, But no, Mm. for real, that was the most profound thing I think anybody has really said to me in my personal journey and uncovering and discovering the parts of me that have been so wounded. I think it was so wild as you're just never even aware. You're Mm -hmm, so unaware mm -hmm. of how deep the pain can dive inside. So. Yeah. So that's how I got here. And now I just love it when adolescents tell me to go fuck myself or suck their dick. It's like my favorite joy (laughs) in the world. Right.
0: Right. Cause yeah, I mean, I can, as you were talking about this, I was just thinking about, you know, that, that fortress was a survival strategy that you needed. You absolutely, it probably kept you alive and, you know, emotionally and potentially physically at one point in life. And then at a certain point, we kind of outgrow that. And especially as a therapist, it's just, I think it's just so funny that we are energetically led to these places that we need to go if we're open to that. And and how sometimes I see students in my class who are like, I'm not going to therapy. And I'm like, well, then I'm not sending you any referrals. Like, (laughs) (laughs) that was me too. Like, I don't need therapy. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there was some something inside of you that was like, no, I I need to do this. And I'm just curious, like what that little voice said, what that I don't know, because there's just that that spark in there is what I'm hearing you relate to with these kids who come in and say, suck my dick. You're like, but you're here. So there's something there that wasn't really a question. But just talk about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> I just didn't feel anything. I had suppressed so many of my negative emotions that I wasn't feeling any positive emotions, what I define as those things. And I was realizing that as things kept bubbling up, and I'm going through school and learning about all these things and really having to do all these reflection papers, what again we all think are bullshit in the beginning, but realize like it makes stuff bubble up. And as those were bubbling up, I was bubbling down is what might mean my therapist would joke, meaning I would drink.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. You
1: know, I'd get home, I'd be doing homework, drinking, whatever it was, just to keep my emotions at bay, you know, so I wouldn't, and I was really, I wasn't feeling love. I wasn't feeling joy. I wasn't feeling happiness either. So I had to figure out why that was and what was going on and fix it, you know, work on it.
0: Mm-hmm. What was your career trajectory? I don't know much about your your history as a therapist. So where did you start and then how did you end up opening a really successful large IOP?
1: <laughs> oh yeah. So I worked for a university medical, center, so did my practicum and then I got hired on, but I was also working for another organized healthcare system, which I really liked. So I was in inpatient on one side and doing IOP, adolescent substance abuse on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, so like working part-time at both after I got out of school. And I always thought, no way would I want to work with kids. And then I realized that's I love working with teenagers. And really, I had started like probably about a year or two after I got out of grad school, I was just seeing like four or five people a week through a former mentor's practice. And a position came available and I had been promoted and I you know, was running the IOP and feeling really good. And I had left the inpatient organization and was full-time in on the IOP. And I was like, well, this is great. I'm going to get promoted. I'm working really hard. And then, of course... What was really interesting to me is I applied for the program director position as soon as I got fully licensed and was denied. And I was told by the higher ups, and this was kind of back in the pet boys days of things and was told that because I'm not in recovery per se,
0: mm. that I would probably
1: most likely never be eligible for <gasps> that position. So I, of course, I put my two weeks resignation the next morning. I had that completed because I was in my mind. I'm like, you have no idea. Like I'm in the middle of like my own recovery. And that looks so different for Mm -hmm, so many people. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And because I went to 12 step meetings because that was part of the deal with my therapist. And that wasn't where I was at. You know, drugs and alcohol meant something different to me as they do to everybody. And I did it. I enjoyed it. I got a lot out of the program and that isn't doesn't seem like a uh, job requisite to me for a lot of mm-hmm. reasons but i Resigned. And then I went and I told my colleague, I said, All right, I'm coming full time. She's like, You're crazy. I said, I know, but I'm, you know, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to take the leap of faith. Screw it. Let's see what happens. And before I knew it, I was full and the practice grew and grew up in the North Shore and brought more of my colleagues on that I've worked with over the years and was really taking these high risk kids that, you know, we kind of used to call me last resort Ryan because I was like, <laughs> you know, like not the to, to my own home or thing. I'm like, awesome, mm-hmm. like I'm a miracle worker in that way. Toot, yeah, toot. <laughs> but I mean, I oftentimes could get kids to a place where they wouldn't need to go to residential again or wilderness again or inpatient. So it was always my goal. I had a very high threshold and still do before referring kids out. But. Yeah. And so we just developed a practice. And then they started a rumor, the place I had worked started a rumor that we were opening an IOP. And I'm like, well, shit, that's not a bad idea, because there's nothing that is all encompassing that addresses all of the mental health issues, as well as all the maladaptive behaviors and the familial conflict that comes from dysregulated kids. So we spent a year researching different modalities landed on dbt which i think is fantastic i think a lot of modalities are fantastic but this seems to really work with our kids and the adaptations they made especially for kids needing that structure and tools right and the families to work with them the parents yeah. and the guardians so yeah and so that's how it happened and then just kind of been watching the need of you know communities that are underserved and although i live in chicago all my locations are 30 miles or further away so just trying to really reach those communities that otherwise wouldn't have these services available to them. That's kind of it in a
0: nutshell. Again, badass. Thank you. I want to go back to the thing that when you didn't get that job because you weren't in recovery, because I think there's so much to unpack there. It's interesting, the more that I get to know other parts of the country and meet other people, I find Chicago is actually pretty unique in that I think we're a pretty female leadership-driven community in the addiction field here. And I feel less of the good old boys club stuff here. But when I go to conferences elsewhere, that is all that's out there. And you're right, it's these old white dudes in recovery don't have, you know, don't necessarily have their master's degrees. And they're like, well, this is what my sponsor told me. And so this is what we're going to do. And that model of treatment has to die. It really is not because I think your story is a really great example of not everybody who abuses alcohol and drugs is actually an addict. If we're using it for trauma, some people end up, they do become addicted, but a lot of people don't. And I actually had somebody reach out to me just last week asking if there was an IOP that wasn't. Abstinence only. And I was like, no, you're just not going to find that. You know, there's so much there because part of it is a liability thing. And, you know, part of it is you have to kind of sort of treat everybody the same. But from a theoretical perspective, we've got to be opening, we've got to be opening to something different.
1: Yeah, totally agree. And that's, you know, why I left. You know, I mean, there's a lot of other reasons. That was the big one. That was, you know, 15 plus years ago too. So I think there's been a huge shift and all of those organizations have changed, which is wonderful, which is great because being able to collaborate with them is very helpful. The other piece is also for me and my business partner, Dana, is that... It was so hard watching people be discharged from treatment they needed because insurance said no or because finances were an issue. So, we have vowed to ourselves and have upheld our promise for over a decade that no family has ever been turned away because the insurance quit paying or because they can't afford it. It was really integral to who we are and what we wanted to be able to do. So, and our kids, you know, I think. It takes a village, right? So to us, it's if you have substance abuse issues, we're going to have you go to meetings and check them out because in the way we see it is, and what I liked about going and going through that and having a temporary sponsor and all those things was in the event, should it become more problematic than it was? I've already been. It's a lot easier to do something that you've already done once. So mm-hmm. that's what, you know, trying to get people exposed to it. There's nothing wrong with that. But I agree. Like, I feel like Chicago, especially over the past five years, like, I don't know what's happened. We have like taken over. Like women have just, it's been like a 180, this wild thing that I'm so nope. surprised and grateful to have been a part of and watch happen.
0: And be a leader in too. Sure. Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> toot, toot. That's me tooting your horn. You're supposed to no, say thanks. toot toot. <laughs> yeah, You know, like you
1: said earlier, like to go back to like when we sat down to talk about business struggles, you know, long ago, it's, it takes all of us. We're a team. And I feel like that's where the paradigm shift has happened is that we are working together. Now you can say, I can say that's not the right case for us, but here is someone I 100% know is. Like that's the shift, the yes. collaboration and the being able to, you know, refer to each other for what we really are, or, you know, I think we're also moved away from being an expert in everything to what our niche is, which I believe is the most powerful thing to do in this field.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, collaboration is so much, I hate to like, this isn't really a gender thing. This is more of an energetic thing that it's a feminine quality to be in community and to Use the wisdom of the community instead of thinking that you have to do it for oneself. And so I'm sure that women stepping up into leadership is part of what's changed it in our community and truly probably what needs to happen in other communities too. Definitely.
1: Yeah. Like you said, especially because in other parts of the country, it's much different. They're still a little behind the times.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The next step too that I, I want to start working with is anti racism in the addiction community. That would be amazing. Right? Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, like Black people are quite underrepresented in treatment, at least in the for-profit arena. And of course, there's a reason for that. Right. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Let's shift into the healer talk, because I'm very curious about your your answer to this question. But would you consider yourself a healer?
1: You know, for sure. I feel like everybody has healing qualities. In one way or another, we all have gifts, right? And blessings. And so I believe everybody, everybody, no matter who you are, has that. I think that it's hard. I mean, I was grappling with this question and I'm sure you've picked up on and because you know me and through this is like, it's very hard for me to really accept my achievements and really accept like, wow, look at me because I feel like there's so much more to do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's just my personality. But definitely, I mean, I did an interview yesterday with a young lady who's at the University of Illinois in undergrad, and she just interviewed, like asking me these questions. And she's mm-hmm. like, What was your greatest success story in therapy? And I was like, well, I can't. I, I mean, there's like a several, like the most difficult cases that are in, a, you know, living a life worth living now that come to mind, but it's like, I couldn't pinpoint. It's just to see people grow and change. And I think for me, it's like accepting of where we're at and our circumstances and of who we are and what can we do to change the things we're unhappy about. Mm-hmm. So I think that makes me a healer for sure.
0: Yeah. I really, really deeply relate to that feeling of Like, yeah, I can accept my achievements on a certain level, but then once it gets to the depth of it, there's this block there. And for me, what I found in doing a lot of work on my developmental trauma is that it's this bind that I was put in as a child where I was supposed to be like, you have to perform and you have to do these things in order to really gain love and approval, but don't get too big because if you get too big, then you are selfish and you're narcissistic. And so there was this like really, really tiny, thin line that I could actually, actually ride where I could show up authentically. But as soon as I try to go beyond that, I just start to feel like, well, everyone's gonna think that I'm a narcissist. Like that's the thing that keeps coming up for me. And it's ugh. Right. (laughs) That's yeah. Is that what happens for you too? Yeah. It's just that fear. Like and
1: I've never been someone who particularly cared for or needed, I guess, praise or like, that's what I've learned throughout my journey is I I was always looking for the approval of others and like the acknowledgement of others Mm -hmm. and the validation of others that I learned how to internally do those things for myself and not have to be reliant, like to check the facts, what has happened. So for me, it's like, I have to be okay with who I am, what I'm doing and what I've achieved and who I want to be. And if I'm online to be that person, I've learned to, it has to come from me first, which has been huge.
0: Yeah. And that, I mean, I I feel like for me, that's going to continue to be my ongoing journey because the internal self is both the cheerleader and the judger, right? Like I judge myself more harshly than anybody ever could. Right. And I, you know, I hear like, when you talk about the way that you experience yourself, of course, I'm like, no, she's not narcissistic. She's not full of herself. Like you're just a fucking badass and I can hold that space for you. And I'm sure you hold that space for me, but to hold it for ourselves is just, that's the challenge. It really is.
1: Yeah. And I think it's just a challenge for almost everybody that walks through our office, right? Right. To our office. Yeah. And I mean, we could go on and on about the societal issues around that. We don't have to do that Mm. today. And I'm just grateful that, I'm able to help others get to that point if mm-hmm. they should allow me to do so.
0: <laughs> right. Well, how do you feel about the term wounded healer? Yeah. That's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. 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 You're a terrible interviewee. Yeah. I know.
1: I am. Lots of Chicago <laughs> with me. I apologize. You're lucky I haven't said <laughs> news guys yet. <laughs> so my dad tells me I talk like a thug i'm like you sound like a hillbilly because he has a southern accent but so it's really quite humorous when we're having a conversation and people are like you're related but no yeah i mean wounded healer i think i don't know anybody that wouldn't apply to especially because i throughout my therapeutic process we all have this wounded child inside of us that we have to quit ignoring and that needs to merge with who we are today And it's by acknowledging that wound inside that, and I always called it little Ryan, that's because I'm 5'11", so like (laughs) Ryan inside. But yeah, like to quit ignoring that part of myself, you know, acknowledge her and help her to move forward, not deny that those things happened and what she went through wasn't real, but to merge and say, you're okay now, you're okay now. And here's what that looks like.
0: It's funny, like in NARM, everyone's heard me talk about this neuroaffective relational model. I'm obsessed, but in NARM, we essentially talk about that as like agency and not, not like I can take care of myself from this place of like, I have to be hyper independent and as kind of a, a reaction to not being taken care of a child, but as an authentic, like adult stepping into the real, true, authentic, no, I can take care of myself.
1: Right. That was a big issue, and I'm going to sound like such a hypocrite right now, but a big issue for me was being alone. I don't like to be alone. And I recently, a year ago, lived alone for the first time in over 40 years. So it was a wild thing. Now, I mean... Now that I have an excuse, you know, coronavirus, I have to stay at my sister's, of course. She has all the Mm -hmm. food. (laughs) But it's just been interesting. Like for me, it's just the being alone was always so difficult. And I couldn't believe it took, I was talking to my dad about it. I was like, 40 years, I've never lived alone. He's like, what? Mm. I'm like, think about it. I've never been alone. This past year has been very, I think the most progress I've ever made for myself personally and like what I really, truly want and need not only from myself, but from others and in a companion, it's been very eye-opening. You know, and it all goes back to, and I, I don't mean to mock my therapist, but the things we fear the most, you know, like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's been the most triumphant year. And I always thought my 40s would be good and they weren't lying. So that's
0: good. It just makes me think, I've found it interesting with some clients recently, I've recognized that there's so much like stuff, when it comes up with people in relationship or people out of relationship. And for some people, it's, I need you to kind of bring your relationship in the room so that I know what's actually happening, like relationally with you and other people. And with some people, it's like, you're actually using relationships to bypass whatever thing it is that you need to work on. So it's just funny, the two different sides of the same coin. Yeah, I've never really thought about it like that. But Mm -hmm. for sure. Because I've had some clients just show up and it's like in person, you're like, why are you really here? What's really going on? And then you hear from the spouse and you're like, oh, there's a lot of shit going on. Like, we we need to be talking about that shit. Right. (laughs) No, no doubt. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I
1: definitely don't do couples. So for those of you listening, that's a solid no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, but just bringing the dynamic into the room.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I'm teasing. But yeah, it's been so even my long lasting clients like that are going through difficult times now in their relationships. I'm like, you need to see a specialist. This, I can help you with anxiety and depression around it. I just Mm -hmm. and helping you make the right decisions for you. I just you. Yeah. But no, and I think that's my own shit. Right. I mean, that's because I am still working through that this many years into it. And that's okay, You know, and I watch people who stay in, in all sorts of unhealthy relationships their the entirety of their life. And I won't allow my friends or families or significant other or colleagues. I won't be in an unhealthy relationship anymore. That's been a work in progress.
0: Right. Yeah. I'd love to pivot the conversation to speak to what you're seeing in the field in terms of new clinicians coming in. Cause I know you do you do hire a lot of clinicians who are newer and I know you have a lot of interns. Actually, that's when we met, right? I was a field liaison for an intern oh, with yeah. you guys. That is the first time we met, which was at least six years ago. So anyway, so are you seeing themes with the young folks in the field? <laughs> She's smiling right now. The themes. sly little smile. Yeah,
1: themes. Oh, man. It's a hard question to ask. And I don't want to come across as though I'm bashing the educational mm-hmm. institutions in any way I can't. Again, right. I'm not. I don't teach. It's something I think I would like, but when I think about it realistically,
0: is it? You know, <laughs> I <laughs> I can tell you all the dark sides of it. Yeah, anytime.
1: I, I love to teach it in the hands-on experience side of things. You know, the clinical side. What I'm finding is they're just ill prepared. I don't know what the difference is. I think one just seem they seem a little clinically ill prepared in mm-hmm. my opinion, even from a diagnostic standpoint which is different. I feel like, and I know this is a generational thing. There's a lot of things are owed to me without hard work, but there's this like eagerness to learn too. First, a lot of, and I can only speak personally to the interns that we work with because, you know, there's this eagerness to learn and absorb and be a sponge, but it's almost like it's hard to slow the roll.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's a
1: method to our training program for a reason, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a, it's a tiered program and there's a reason for that.
0: Right. Right. No, you can't go run a group on day one. Right. No,
1: you cannot have individual clients (laughs) after two months. Like, you know, that's just the way we do things because we want them to be the best they can be once they're done with the very short year that we have with them truthfully.
0: Are you seeing any any resistance to them like doing their own personal work? Is that something that you discuss with your interns? Yeah,
1: we discuss it with all of them. I don't think we've had an intern that wasn't either in lots of therapy or some sort of therapy throughout their lifetime. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And that's something that comes up. So we're lucky that we do weekly group consultation with everyone once a week for an hour, at least. And then we also do individual supervision. So a lot of times it's been indicated we can't force you and it might be a good idea to go back and revisit some of this stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm guessing that because I try to use myself as a model and I'm guessing that you do too, because you so beautifully talked about what your experiences were and how crucial it was for you to have gone to therapy and to learn to take down that wall and just show up the chain link fence. Right. And so I think that that's a really amazing example that you set for not only the interns, but your staff too.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I um, have always been someone who shares a lot of personal stuff. Everybody has an opinion about that, but it works for Mm -hmm. me. And I Mm -hmm. know how I keep it safe for myself and my clients. I just feel Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. I learned at age 27 that I have to be 100% Ryan, no matter who's around Yeah. I know anybody that knows me knows that's the case. Whether I'm talking to my dog, my dad, my pastor, I'm not religious. I don't know why I said pastor,
0: but (laughs) (laughs) I love you. You just called yourself
1: out. (laughs) I know. Like what? You know, my friends, my family, I mean, it does my, you know, Mm -hmm. whoever it is, I'm just, I'm always the same. You know, I think that's what helps me to tell the truth and be true more often, you know,
0: Yeah, I also just want to kind of interject here because I sometimes hear people talk about like, yeah, I'm authentically me and this is just how I am. And there's a sort of push and there's this, "Mm," I don't know, the sense that I get is that's actually not really authentic. And I think that's part of the denial that you were sharing about yourself earlier, because I'm sure at 25, that's how you were like, yeah, I just, I show up and this is how I am. But you weren't actually connected to self. And what I see today is a woman who truly embodies authenticity because you're connected to both the dark and the light within yourself.
1: That's exactly what I was trying to say. Thank you, Sarah. You're welcome. (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly what I was trying to say. Yeah, definitely. And it's also that I can show up and be me. And that might come with adversity, that might come with rejection, that might come with dislike, and that's okay, too. Mm-hmm. And being okay with that. I think for a long time, it was, you know, someone who was always craving positive attention and any kind of like acknowledgement was people pleasing, and you don't have to please everyone. It's okay.
0: Right. And I wanted to go back to your piece on self-disclosure too, because I, you know, I talk about this a lot with students when I teach and it's kind of hard to put language around the feeling of just knowing when you can disclose. But I also think it has a lot to do with the population that you work with. And teens, I remember when I was working with teenagers, my supervisor was like, if you show up and you are not yourself, they are going to sniff you out instantly. So you better fucking be authentic. And then with substance abuse, too, like people who are working with addiction issues, that is also a population where you've got to be fucking authentic and honest and don't try to be a poser. And so I find with those folks, that's where that's when self-disclosure is not only a tool, but a necessary tool.
1: Right. Someone who works primarily with adolescents, you know, they ask, well, how do you know? And they do it in all these different ways. Like, how do you know? What did you do? Did you ever? And it's not about mm-hmm. that. You know, it's about, Right. I feel blessed that my gut is my go-to and it works, you know, I know. And it's just those moments and you're right. It's hard. That's a difficult question to ask. How do you know when to help right. with those and not? And it's just, you, you feel it. You, it's just a feeling you have. And you know that this will be a powerful moment.
0: Right. That's one of the pieces that I wish there was more attention to in grad school was really the nuance of the art of therapy instead of just the science, right? Like we've got like these kids are having evidence-based practice banged over their heads like 24 seven. And I'm like, yes. And at some point you have to forget all of that and just be a person in the room with this other hurting person. And that art piece is, is what I try to at least infuse into my classes.
1: Yes. I mean, that's 100%. You're absolutely correct. I mean, that's what's missing. And the hope is they get into a great practicum where they learn all of that, right? And be able to talk about those things and and ask those questions. Just oftentimes, I'm afraid they're not, you know, they're not able to really learn that way.
0: Well, you don't know what you don't know. Right. That's where I wish I could change the education system. Because I, my fantasy would be if all of the professors were in some sort of practice and in their own therapy so that we could all be teaching from this embodied place, that we'd be able to call the students into that. And that's not to say that all other professors are bad. I'm the only good professor. There are a lot of amazing professors. But... I'm going to blame capitalism too, because, because it's schools are a business, you know, and there are certain, certain boxes that need to be checked. And it's interesting because it's, you know, you can't put your finger on like, oh, it's the deans that are doing this, or it's the professors because it's the system. It's bigger than all of us. And will be really, really hard to shift.
1: Yeah. And it's true. I mean, even like for, I'm an LCPC. So like now you have your LPC before you leave when I was going through it I graduated in July I couldn't even take the test because it was offered twice a year and I took it in October so it, I feel like it's more kind of like I don't know what they call the test like in school or high schools yeah. and school, so they could show like how much people are passing and how I don't know what they call that but yeah it feels the same way now it's kind of evolved into graduate studies so
0: yeah oh the follies of American culture
1: Yes. But I give you credit though for teaching. I think that's great. And they're very lucky to have someone like you to to lead them in their journey. Thanks.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna take that in. You should. (laughs) Thank you. Well, we're coming to the end of the hour. And I promised you we'd keep it within the hour because we have shit to do. But first of all, where can people find you? What information do you want to share with them? And then to have we not talked about something that's really important that you want to share with people?
1: Well, one, I mean, LinkedIn is the best way to connect. I love to connect on LinkedIn. I love reading people's articles and all the things people share, especially because people have more time to do it now, which has been really interesting. But, you know, my website's www.familyrecoverycenters.com and chicagointegrative.com. You Google me, that's all that shows up anyway, (laughs) um, (laughs) because, yeah. Um, And anything
0: I wanted to talk about? I don't think so. We solved all the world's problems.
1: 100%.
0: You heard it here, folks. Everything is solved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with me. I'm I'm so glad to, first of all, just that we got to hang out for an hour and secondly that you're that you're sharing all this with the world.
1: Okay. Well thank you. And thank you for asking me. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Thank you Ryan for that amazing conversation and thank you all for listening. To find more information about Ryan, you can go to our website at www.headhearttherapy.com/podcast. Thank you to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.